I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, it's a common misconception that drinking eight glasses of water a day is enough for healthy hydration. But sweat consists of water and sodium, which means that you need water plus electrolytes to stay properly hydrated. Thankfully, there are products like Element that have all your electrolyte needs covered. You can try an Element Recharge Sample Pack by going to drinklmnt.com slash Alexi for only the cost of shipping. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union Pod, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking, obviously, Gold Cup and Olympics and MLS and Woodstock and Ted Lasso and water skiing and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, July 26th in the year 2021? I am doing well, uh, a little tired, and not just because of uh, work. Uh, I have been waking up early on some of these days to take in some of the Olympic action, so uh, I'm into it. Well, we're going to, yeah, well, we're going to talk a whole lot more about the Olympics, what it is, what it isn't on and off the field and all that kind of stuff later on. I, I will tell you that um, not being, you know, this isn't some, uh, I'm not making some statement here or anything like that. It's just, it, it is, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, although I, it, it wasn't as difficult back in 2002 during that, that, that World Cup, but um, I have not watched a whole lot of Olympics and certainly in the way that I may have in the past. And yeah, I mean, waking up in the middle of the night is not easy. Speaking of waking up in the middle of the night, we have a guest today, Mossy. Um, we have a great guest. Uh, Doug McIntyre is joining us uh, today uh, from evidently uh, up there in the great white North. He lives up in Montreal. He is a wonderful writer. I've known him for years. We've known him for re- years. If you're into soccer, you will have read him at some point uh, along the way in all of his different stops. And Thankfully, uh, we are uh, the beneficiaries of his latest stop, which is here at Fox. And we hope that it is a long, fruitful one. It already has. He's already hit the ground running uh, with uh, the writing that he is doing. Uh, The new Fox Sports soccer writer, Doug McIntyre. Welcome, my friend. Welcome to the State of the Union. How are you up there, mon ami? I'm doing I'm doing great. Thank you, Alexi. That was a, a hell of an intro. Uh, I hope I can live up to it, but it's a, it's a pleasure to join you guys. All right. So I, I said you hit the ground running. What are your marching orders when it comes to Fox? And uh, evidently you do something called writing. OK, uh, I've heard tell of this over the years, but evidently there's people out there that that want to actually read as opposed to watch and listen to what's going on there. So you write down all of these words uh, and then people click on it and they read it. Is that uh, an accurate representation of what you do? 
That, that is the hope, Alexia, though, you know, we're, we're doing video as well. So it's, it's, you know, multi-platform is, is the way to go these days. Um, but yes, I'm very thankful to the folks out there that, that still read. Well, you are, uh, you are good in re- regardless of what platform, as I said, um, entertaining uh, and, and certainly uh, informative in the way that you talk about and think about the game. And so we are very, very fortunate to have you as we are uh, to have you on this podcast, because anybody that's listened understands that, that certainly me and, and maybe to a certain extent, uh, Masi, we need all the help that we can get. And so thank you very much for bailing us out, which I'm already anticipating you will do on numerous occasions uh, through this. Um, I, 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 you were uh, briefed a little bit beforehand. Oftentimes when we kick this show off, we talk about things that uh, we are watching out there. Um now, I know they have uh, electricity and they have uh, Netflix and the like up there in uh, in Canada. So what have you been watching that has uh, tickled your fancy, as they say? Yeah, good, good question. I've, I've tried to start uh, the new season of Ted Lasso, big fan of the show. Uh, got about halfway through the first episode uh, before I had to go to sleep. The uh, These games and press conferences at all hours uh, are, are not that friendly, uh, as you know, so... If I want to keep my brain, I have to make sure I'm getting as much rest as I as I can. And uh, I'm not sure I'm doing a great job. I'm a little bit on fumes right now, to be honest. When with it so. comes to Ted Lasso, were you shamed into watching it at the beginning and then just the inertia and, and everybody screaming and yelling about it? Or were you one of the, the originals out there? It's a really good question. I actually started watching it and uh, my wife and I weren't feeling it in the first episode. And my wife comes back to me a few, few, uh, weeks or months later and says, you know, I think we might have to give this Ted Lasso show another try, but big, big fan of Jason Sudeikis. And, uh, once I got into it, yeah, like everyone else was hooked and it's such a nice yep. show. I mean, that, that's what's great about it. That's, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it's the characters are likable and it's, it was a, a beautiful show at a moment. I think we all needed something like that in our yeah, lives. I love it, but I don't trust it. I mean, it's too nice. It's too kind. There's, there's gotta be something that's going to drop at some point. That's just going to steer us off into a completely different direction. It's, it's, no too, spoilers wholesome. Like, it's too wholesome for 2021. No spoilers. No spoilers. Is that? No spoilers, exactly. please. Exactly. Uh, Mossy, are you watching anything or uh, doing anything? I know you're uh, working hard too. This morning I finally finished Top Boy. Although I say finished it, uh, there are more seasons coming, but that is the British show. It's known as the British Wire. It's uh, about uh, the drug game and these housing projects in London, uh, recommended to me by uh, Keith Cossigan and Zach Kenworthy, two of our colleagues at Fox, uh, and terrific. Uh, very glad they recommended it. I'm hooked. I uh, can't wait for whenever the next season of it comes. So uh, that was a success. Speaking of that, I, I got a uh, a nice uh, and very positive and complimentary text from our good friend Kate Abdo, who I know listens to this show. And uh, if you are listening right now, hello, Kate, and uh, I hope you're doing well. But but she really took a little issue with the antiquated way in which we are talking about shows, especially when it comes to like Downton Abbey. And, and she was laughing at us for kind of being so behind the times, uh, if you will. Although, uh, you know, this one right here is is a little bit more, um, you know, of uh, of the time. Um, but have have at it, Kate. We are absolutely admittedly coming to a lot of things late. But sometimes we're there. Sometimes yeah, we're there. We were ahead of the curve on Mayor of Easttown. leading the way. We were ahead of the What's curve that? on Mayor of Easttown. 
That's true, but you know how it is in, in television or any type of broadcast type of situation. They only look at the negative. They only look at the bad things. They never remember when you when you pick a uh, pick something right. Nobody ever remembers that. They only remember the ones that you predicted wrong uh, when it comes to that. Uh, I watched uh, the new Woodstock documentary, uh, Woodstock 99, which is just out actually on HBO. Uh, Bill Simmons, his outfit over there is doing a bunch of different kind of pop culture um, documentary types of things. And this was that the first one, I think is what is going to be a series. And it's really, really interesting. Um, and it's really kind of kind of disturbing, but it does, it does having been a 20 something during that, that period of time uh, from what, what it was musically and culturally, it's, it's amazing to see. And especially coming on the heels of the whole fire uh, festival type of thing. Uh, what a complete shit show it was back in 1999 relative to the successful, um, and much more positive and healthy types of uh, Woodstocks in 1994 and obviously the original in uh, 1969. So com- I definitely recommend it. It is not for the faint of heart because it gets uh, it gets down and dirty into what the, the festival uh, was and uh, and wasn't. Uh, but it is also an incredible peek back into that that 90s era and culture that you know, I was knee deep in, and 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 both of you to a certain extent were uh, were too. So uh, check that out. All right, listen. Enough of this talk. Uh, you ready to light this candle, Mossy? Let's do it. All right, we are going to jump right into the State of the Union here, and we're gonna we're gonna go right right into the uh, Gold Cup. Now, Doug, you are watching, as I said, multiple uh, tournaments going on. You are up at all hours of the night. You're not sleeping at all. Uh, but you are intaking all of this kind of stuff. In general, uh, as we sit here on, as I said, Monday, after the U.S. having uh, beaten Jamaica in the quarterfinal match to set up a semifinal round game against Qatar, just first off, your general thoughts on how this kind of different and unique Gold Cup, especially for the U.S., given the group that they assembled for this, how this has gone both on and off the field? I think it's gone... Better than a lot of people are giving the U.S. credit for. Um, there was a lot of hand-wringing after the first round because the U.S. didn't beat Haiti by more than a goal. They didn't beat Canada by more than a goal. They didn't look particularly good in either of those games. They did score six goals against Martinique, but that's Martinique, so it doesn't really count. And, uh, you know, when you <laughs> – I've said this before and I've written this. It's almost like how you look at it depends on if you're a glass half full or a glass half empty sort of person. So, you know, I thought – when you look at the U.S. team, they didn't give up a goal from the run of play in the group stage. They won all three of their games. They win the group. They beat a near full-strength Canada team with such a ridiculously young squad. I don't think that's been emphasized enough how inexperienced this team was. The the the, the starting lineup against Martinique was the youngest uh, team the U.S. has ever assembled or lined up in a, in a competitive match. And in a crazy way, that wasn't even the, the the most interesting stat. The most interesting stat was the starting lineup averaged five caps. I mean, think about that. That's that's insane. So I was very impressed with the U.S. team against Jamaica last night. I thought that was going to be a very tough test. I thought there was a chance that Jamaica would win that game. And the U.S. showed the fight and the character that they're going to need in World Cup qualifying that we saw in the Nations League. Uh, with the full squad that that they won over Mexico. And I think it's a really good sign for this player pool, you know, that that the fight and desire and all those those things that we talked about that you need in in qualifying games against CONCACAF foes that are street fights. It's not about pretty passing. It's not about, you know, who who can make the prettiest plays, although you certainly need those moments. Um, So I'm I'm optimistic now that this team can 
get past a, a good Qatari squad in the semis and and get to a final hopefully yeah, I mean, the, the against Qatar Mexico. Story is something that we certainly are 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 talking about, and for for obvious reasons, given the fact that they are hosting the World Cup next summer, and the fact that they have brought something different and very competitive to this Gold Cup, so much so that yes, I want the U.S. to win in the semifinal and go to the final for a number of reasons, and not the least of which is. I don't want to, the guests are all fine and well, but I don't want them winning our confederation. I don't want Qatar coming over here and winning our, uh, you know, our, our trophy uh, from as a, as a type of guest. Um, I took, I took a little shit uh, out there when I suggested on air yesterday. And, and I, I had talked about this a little bit before that, and, and to your point with the inexperience uh, that is out there uh, and with this new collection that is thrown together, I, you know, I submit that, if this team were to beat Qatar and arrive in the final, and we'll talk a little bit about the other semifinal, but for all intents and purposes right now, I think that it's Mexico's to lose when it comes to getting to that final and in that final, to be quite honest. If this U.S., this particular U.S. team were to get to the final, I said that that would be a much more uh, uh, impressive uh, and um, noteworthy type of performance and accomplishment than the U.S. beating Mexico in the Nations League, specifically because I've been told since this since this roster was announced a long time ago, even before the tournament started, that this was a B team, this was a C team. Oh, we don't have our players, and absolutely there are other players out there that are going to make up the core of this team when we see them in qualifying. But I, I, I thought that that was disrespectful and, and I pushed back a little bit, but let's just say that I accept that. If that is the case, then for this team to do what they are doing and to get to that final and then potentially play Mexico in a final in front of 80,000 people, and we know in Vegas it's going to be 80,000 people and 79,000 of them are going to be cheer cheering for, if it's Mexico, the Mexican team right there. If they were to get to that final, I just think that it would be an incredible feather in Greg Berhalter's cap and this team's cap. Now, my friend Marisa Du was having none of it. He was having none of it. He didn't believe that that was the truth at all. And there's plenty of people out there, I think, that uh, that agree with him. I'm just I'm just saying that in the current situation that they have created and that Greg Berhalter and the leadership have created with this team that they have assembled, uh, I think that it would be incredibly impressive. And I and I think that the praise um, and the kudos would be absolutely warranted. And relative to this summer, where we've already seen this team win a trophy. I just think that it would be more uh, more impressive. Uh, Mossy, I'm going to go to you first. Agree or disagree with that uh, that conversation, that discussion that we had? Uh, disagree with you. I'm on the Mo side of that debate. Um, I think uh, other than Mexico, there's no other team in this tournament that the U.S. beating, uh, it has the resonance that uh, that Nations League win had uh, over Mexico an extra time in the final. That felt like a real landmark signature win uh, for this generation of players. Uh, I do want to ask Doug a question, though. Um, this tournament has been framed as a search for depth. Uh, and, and the idea being that there's this presumed starting 11, which is the team that played in the Nations League. And then all we're really looking for in this Gold Cup is to find players that can be uh, good backups heading into World Cup qualifying. But there is a position where I would push back and, and, and where there's a player impressing me to the point where I'm wondering if maybe he should be the starter moving forward. And that's in goal. Uh, Doug, if the U.S. had a do-or-die game tomorrow, who would you trust more, Matt Turner or Zach Steffen? Good question, David. I, I still, I still think it's, it's well. First of all, the decision is Greg Berhalter's, and he would start Zach Steffen in that game. Uh, I agree. I think Turner is one of the guys that's really acquitted himself well in this tournament. 
You've seen his shot stopping ability. He made five saves in the first half the other night that kept the U.S. or kept the game even, allowed the U.S. to, to get that late winner and, and win the game. There are still questions in the modern game uh, if if Turner can play the ball with his feet out of the back. I think that's the big thing. And you'll now I I, I did a story on Matt last year. He's a really interesting character. He has a really interesting story. He did not uh, he did not grow up playing soccer. He didn't start taking the sport seriously until he was well into high school. And it was the 1994 World Cup that was kind of the catalyst for him. He was, you know, a young kid watching, and and uh, it, it's uh, it, it's uh, it, in fact, it might not even have been 94. Now that I think about it, it might have been later than that. But uh, you know, a, a guy that's a late bloomer, um, but is certainly, you know, has certainly shown that he's at least the number three in in Greg Berhalter's depth chart. Ethan Horvath, we remember, replaced Zach Steffen in in the Nations League final and and uh, produced those heroics, the penalty save win. Uh, or the penalty save that it gave them the win. Um, I still think that in a in a game, you know, World Cup quick game or World Cup qualifier, you start the guy that has the most experience in Stefan. But but Turner's uh, he's he's working his way up the depth chart, and there's still a long way to go between now and Qatar, and a lot can happen. All right. So when we talk about uh, th- this U.S. team, and you know, Qatar is a very good team, the Asian champs. Uh, I do think that they are beatable. They make mistakes. They have through this through this tournament. Part of that is kind of what's made them actually entertaining. It's not just uh, you know a complete domination in the way that they play. Having said that, they got some really good individual players. But Greg Berhalter and company will have seen exactly what this Qatar team is and will have the ability to go about neutralizing. This is a complete team in that there's no players waiting in the wings as there is with uh, some other teams, including the including the U.S. Um, and you know, I, I I actually think that having gotten by Jamaica, I think the Qatar game is in a strange way is going to be easier for for this U.S. team. It's going to be fun, uh, and there's going to be plenty plenty of fans and the opportunity to yet again this summer go to a uh, a title game and uh, for uh, for a trophy is is there, and that's why you know I, I keep talking about I think this is going to be impressive, and I don't I don't think that we should. We should poo-poo this. We are in a situation where we are taking a completely separate group of players and still being able to have success. And I think that that, as I said, is worth uh, worth praise. Um, the other semifinal uh, features Mexico versus Canada. Uh, unless you guys want to do a deep dive into this type of thing, uh, if we were to take our money and pull it together, I think we would all agree to put it on Mexico and Mexico by multiple goals, especially when you have a Canada team that is already down players because uh, of injury when it comes to uh, Io and uh, and Kyle Lahren. And now they lose uh, Cavallini and uh, Vittoria on yellow cards. And so I think that this is a this is a very tall order for a, Cana- a Canadian team that it has has really performed well. And also, I think, uh, warrants the attention that that it that it is getting. And as we get towards the octagonal uh, this fall. Uh, the, you know they are when they are at full strength, even missing players uh, that they are. You know that that is not easy. So I think it can be looked at as a success, regardless of what happens uh, against Mexico. But I mean, Mexico has to be the overwhelming favorite given the circumstances. Anybody uh, disagree with that? No. Okay. Good. You want to hit though, on that at all, Moss? Let me say though, Lex, uh, and and I'll, I'll throw this to Doug as well. Uh, regardless of what happens in this game against Mexico, I think Canada have stamped themselves as the number three team in CONCACAF. If you were doing a power ranking going into the octagonal, I've been really impressed. Uh, I agree with you. It, they've just lost too many uh, good players uh, due to injury or suspension to be able to beat Mexico in this game. But you take what we've seen 
from them in this tournament. And you start plugging in some of the players that were missing, like Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies. And you're looking at a team that I, I think now is the clear-cut third-best team in CONCACAF. Would you agree, Doug? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that. I didn't, I didn't think of it in those terms. We always think about, you know, U.S., Mexico, Costa Rica, Honduras is the big four in the region. But you're right, David. Costa Rica and Honduras, I think, are going through a little bit of a downturn. Uh, and I was, I was very impressed by how easily Canada handled Costa Rica, despite missing some of their big guns. And yet, reaching the semifinals for them, I think, is a triumph in itself. I don't think, you know, I agree that they're, they don't have the firepower to get past Mexico. But this is a team that's, that's here to stay, and they're going to be very dangerous come qualifying in the fall. Yeah, I mean, they were the better team, even though they lost to the U.S., they were the better team uh, on the day. So good stuff from, from Canada. We, we remind you each and every time, the last time that the Canadian men's national team qualified for a World Cup was 1986. And it, I, I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, it shouldn't have been that long, given what Canada is um, and the, the type of talent that they have had. But certainly at this moment, with this group, uh, really looks uh, looks good. But, you know, keep in mind that it's happening at a time when El Salvador, I mean, Hugo Perez, hats off to what Hugo Perez has done with that El Salvador team, and they're not going to be an easy out by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to qualifying. It remains to be seen how that, how that what what the U.S.'s would be an away uh, qualifier in El Salvador uh, is going to play out because uh, evidently there, there's there's a good chance it's not going to be in front of fans. But ultimately, from a team perspective, this is this is as good an El Salvador team that I have seen in a long, long time. So that octagonal is shaping up to be uh, something uh, something special. Um, all right, before we move on to uh, some MLS talk, when it comes to the the final, I got the U.S. going through against. Uh, uh, Qatar and I got Mexico going through. Anybody differ on there? And it's okay. It's just this isn't about your head, uh, your heart. This is about your head. Mossy, I got Qatar. Yeah, I'm gonna, did. I'm gonna ride this uh, <laughs> until the end. I love this team. But is it, is it just your heart speaking? I mean, yeah, they're fun to watch and all that kind of stuff. But or, or, or do you have real things that you're pointing to that you think are, are going to uh, pose problems for the U.S. Not since 82 Brazil has a team captured the hearts of neutrals the way this Here Qatar team has at this Here tournament. Uh, uh, no, I, I'm being somewhat facetious. They, they, they've shown themselves to be a bit flaky, particularly when they get ahead in the game. They don't know how to manage the results. So I, so I think that could hurt them. But uh, they play with just this carefree attitude so expansively that uh, obviously we want U.S.-Mexico, but Qatar would be a decent consolation. I mean, as many chances to get to watch that team, uh, I'm not going to complain about that. So we'll All see right. what happens. Well, I hope that you are completely wrong. Um, <laughs> anyway, not, 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 you're not wrong that they're fun to watch. I hope that you're wrong in terms of them uh, beating the U.S., but that'll be fun. That all happens on Thursday uh, and then the final on Sunday in, as I said, Vegas in front of 80,000 people there in Las Vegas. So that'll be uh, that'll be fun. All right, let's uh, let's transition a little bit over to Major League Soccer. Uh, you know, the gift that just keeps on giving on and off the field, all the craziness and nuttiness that is what we love about this uh, this league uh, was on display. You know, we talked last week about, uh, you know, our the, the friends in Atlanta and the crisis that they are going through and the drama uh, <laughs> that they are going through with uh, firing Gabriel Heinze. The, the craziness and the drama that's going on down in uh, in 
uh, Miami with David Beckham's Inter Miami, and they just can't seem uh, to get it together despite spending oodles and oodles of money. Um, and what those teams are going to look like going forward, if there's going to be a change down in Miami, we know there's a change in Atlanta. It hasn't necessarily uh, uh, changed everything in that they lost again and they lost again at home. Uh, no shame necessarily to the MLS Cup champions uh, with Columbus crew. Um did anything stand out to you rather than going through everything here? Anything uh, over the weekend stand out to you? I'll go to you, uh, Mossy, first. Well, you mentioned uh, Doug's already been doing some writing for Fox. He wrote a piece about uh, the mess in Atlanta that got a lot of traction. Now, now Doug, Alexi is no Gabrielle Heinz, so you can drink as much water as you want during this podcast. Um, but, uh, for those that didn't read that piece or even those that did, but uh, if you want to expound on it, I mean, just how much of a mess was it the past few months with, uh, Gabrielle Heinz in charge? Yeah, it sounded like it was hell. I mean, that, that's the expression that, you know, that, that one of the folks inside the club that I spoke to, you know, that's how he described it. He said that every day for the last six months was hell. And I think you had a situation where you've seen coaches come from outside, uh, the league from other countries and come in and there is a culture shock when you get into MLS. It's completely different than, than coaching in any, anywhere else in the world. And there's all these, you know, rules and regulations. And, you know, we've seen foreign coaches struggle and, you know, the exception of the rule uh, was Tata Martino and Tata had a learning curve when he first came to MLS to Atlanta United as well. And the reason why he was successful was he was able to adapt enough to be able to, you know, to realize he's in a, a different place, there's a different culture, and he had to adapt at least a little bit. And some of the things that, you know, that, that he held, he was flexible on. And when you do that, you you buy a lot of goodwill, you earn the trust of your, your players. And for whatever reason, Gabriel Heinze was just not willing to compromise, it sounds like, on anything. He, you know, and he, he stuff, the, you know, things that are real head scratchers. I mean, you talk about you know, him thinking that, you know, water makes you weak or whatever. You know, I don't, I don't know that, that, that that's what he said exactly. Um, but look, basic stuff like building relationships with the staff that apparently he had just appeared to have no interest in, in doing. And I don't understand how any coach can come into a new club and think that, you know, that's a recipe for success. So, you know, re really strange, but it, it became clear, I think, inside the team that, that there had to be a change there as shocking as it was from the outside. And then when you hear some of the details, you know, it's, uh, you know, better late than never, but it's, I think it was the right, it's pretty clear that it was the right decision and the, the only decision for Atlanta United to make. And so I make this point is, a lot about American fault? coaches. Where's, uh, the, you where's look the fault though? Mossy, where, where's the fault? Well, I, just the, uh, Doug made this point about foreign coaches versus American coaches. It's something we talk about a lot on this podcast. You look at the Supporter Shield standings right now. It's Smetzer, it's Vermes, it's it's Vanny, it's Arena. There's something to it. Uh, as you mentioned, Tata Martino is the only unequivocal success among the foreigners. There have been a couple others that you could argue were relative successes, but there is something to the fact that it, it, in order to be successful in this league, you have to understand all the intricacies of it. Uh, but yeah, as far as whose fault it is, yeah, I agree with you, uh, Alexi. Uh, everybody knew uh, Gabriel Heinz's personality. I mentioned last week that Palmeiras in Brazil were, were thinking about appointing him, and they were scared off by once they did their due diligence on it, uh, understanding the way he is and how much he clashes with players in front office. Uh, and so they went in different directions. So Atlanta clearly should have done more homework here, or or, or given more credence to the, this reputation that he has for being difficult to get along with. So I, I, I absolutely blame the Atlanta front office for this. 
All right. So what happens? Uh, what happens in your crystal ball there, Doug? Having uh, you know, having researched this and, and and talked about this and written about this, what do you think they'll end up doing? Do you think that they do do something quickly? I know that uh, Darren Yales had talked about wanting to do something. One thing to want, it's another thing to be able to do it. So what do you think they do? They they want to do something quickly. That process has already started, from what I understand. Um, and from from what I've heard, they're they're again looking outside the country. I mean, this is a club that has huge ambitions and. You know that we look at their three, the three managers they've had. I mean, they're all big time, big name, you know, international level managers. Tata Martino coached Barcelona, Argentina. Frank De Boer, you know, comes in having coached some some massive clubs, you know, Ajax, Inter Milan, um, and goes back to the Dutch national team. And of course, of course, Heinz is so. For me, the 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 fly in the ointment is is can can Rob Valentino, the interim coach, you know, get this team turned around in however many games he has. And, you know, lay a claim to, to getting the job, you know, permanently. I think that's a, that's a real long shot. Uh, but I also think there's a lot of people inside that club and outside it that would love to see that happen. So we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. But, you know, given the track record of this, this club, I think they swing for the fences and they go for another, another big name. That's just, that just seems to be what they want to do. All right. Well, when it comes to other stuff going on in MLS, um, you know, uh, Seattle Sounders, we knew it couldn't last and it hasn't lasted. Uh, and they're going on, I guess, for Seattle, what is a a, um, a a downturn here, losing at home to Sporting KC three to one. So that was an interesting, uh, interesting result. You know, as as you know, as I said, and I'd like to get your thoughts, uh, Doug, because you know, the the dysfunction of teams. I mean, you've been in this business long enough. That's much more interesting than the success of teams. Let's be honest. All right. If it bleeds, it leads. We all under, under understand that. And so when we talk about Atlanta, all that dysfunction is is uh, is catnip to the soccer public out there, whether you're in Atlanta or not. And actually speaks to how big Atlanta has come, that they are relevant even outside their market. And I think when it comes to Inter-Miami, because of the David Beckham situation, because of the big market and because of the futility so far, and again, that dysfunction going on there and you know the cheating scandal early on and all the different stuff that is going on right now, how do you see that playing out? Because it's not getting any better right now on the field and they are Chris Henderson, as the new leader there, he's limited as to what he can do because of some of the restrictions that they have. Uh, look into your crystal ball and let me know how that one goes. <laughs> well, I'd also add in the fact, Alexi, that they waited so long to get that team. So there's the, this huge wait, you know, five years, seven years, whatever it was for, you know, for Miami to finally get get on, you know, get get their team off the ground. They do last year. COVID hits immediately. Um, you know, so sort of a, a lost season for them. And then this year they just, you know, they, they don't look good. And again, we all had some questions. Is Phil Neville the right guy for this job? He's, you know, he's never really, you know, proven himself at this level. He doesn't know much about the league. Is he only getting the job because he's David Beckham's buddy? And David Beckham said, no, 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 of course, that's not the reason. But you look at the results and you, you start to wonder and you wonder, you know, how long that friendship with Beckham is going to, is going to matter um, before they have to make a change. So, you know, it's, I, I don't anticipate something happening quickly. I think they're going to give him every chance to turn this thing around. But, you know, at some point, uh, you know, the, it, it just becomes embarrassing. I mean, that team is, has looked, you know, not even, I mean, not competitive this year. And that in a league like MLS is just not acceptable. Mossy, uh, you're a cutthroat, uh, villainous, uh, you know, Type of individual out there. Is there any world in which a team that you ran, uh, if they had gone through and are what uh, Inter Miami is right now, that you wouldn't be changing the coach? 
No, yeah, he needs to go. I would have never hired him to begin with. I thought that was a ridiculous hire. And yeah, the way things have gone, <laughs> they should make a change there. Why uh, is it? Why? Why is it ridiculous? He took, uh, you know, he took a national team to the semifinal of the World Cup. Uh, I think the resume otherwise, though, is pretty light. Uh, I don't know that there is uh, any uh, equivalency there. Um, But uh, I do want to talk about another issue in the league. Um, NYCFC, they've been playing better than their record. They finally get a great result uh, this past weekend, 5-0 over Orlando. But overshadowed somewhat by the stadium situation, our uh, former colleague at Fox, Ian Joy, had an absolute meltdown on that telecast uh, discussing the stadium situation. He said he called Yankees president Randy Levine to try to get to the bottom of what's going on. And he came out of that conversation feeling like the Yankees are not to blame. It's really the city of New York. So Ian Joy has now gone to war with the uh, uh, New York City government. Um, Doug, what do you know about that situation? What do you make of it? And do you agree that that uh, continues to be one of the great blights in this league that uh, NYCFC has to play at their games uh, where they do? I, I agree. And I'm, I'm from New York City. And when that team was announced, you know, I, you know, there was so much excitement about it. And actually, you know, I was I was pleasantly surprised by the, the, the hunger in New York City for there to be an MLS team. We know that, you know, the Metro Stars first and then the Red Bulls uh, you know, have not been able to capture fans coming from New York City to see the games. It's, they play in New Jersey. It's too far. It's a pain to get there. It's a pain to get back. Um, and I was shocked that, you know, New York City FC was able to get so many fans into Yankee Stadium in those early years. But you're coming up on, you know, that that team was announced in 2013. They they played their first match two years later. And it's getting old. I mean, that's it's not a good place to watch a, a game. And I think that you know, you need to give fans some hope that there's that something's going to happen, that something's going to change. And, uh, you know, I, I would not put the blame on the city of New York as hard, you know, as hard it is, as it is to get things built uh, there. You're talking about a club that is owned by, you know, some of the richest folks in the world. And if they wanted to put a stadium down tomorrow, uh, I, I like to think that they could do they could do that. So. Um, it's not a good situation. There's no end in sight. I mean, even if they got approval to build the stadium tomorrow, it would take years before they're actually in the building. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that we all saw this coming years and years ago. And, you know, I remember asking MLS commissioner, Don Garber, VP Mark Abbott about it at the time. You know, I wasn't a fan of the, of branding themselves after an existing European club. I, you know, I still think that that was not the way to go. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's not a great situation in New York city for a team that for the most part on the field has done. Okay. I mean, I think they've, they've been all right, but you know, it's the off stadium off field, uh, issues in the stadium issue that I think, you know, has a lot of fans of that team really, really down in the dumps still. I mean, look, I don't want to make any excuses for them and I'm sick and tired of the excuses and it's, uh, it's their problem. And it's a problem that they created. It's a problem that they could have anticipated. And look, you're from New York. You understand that location is is huge. And getting a location, given the politics and the history and all of the stuff that goes on, this, this is something that every New Yorker, and by the way, most people outside of New York could have said, yeah, this is going to be a problem. And so you know, I get from a valuation standpoint, they wanted to, uh, you know, get that $100 million uh, franchise fee. I get that. I understand all that. But, and and I'm sure, Doug, the same thing was told to you at the time that, yeah, there's a plan and we understand what's going on and, and we'll figure this out. But they haven't figured it out. And they're just, you know, stringing, uh, stringing us along. To your point, Mossy, on the field, the numbers uh, 
said that this was a better team, and now we're starting to see better better results. And over the years, I think this team actually has been very, very interesting in some of the things that they've done. The the Yankee uh, Stadium experience, that's that's worn out. I mean, pe- people have had that, and it's no longer this interesting, cool type of thing. And look, we are in, as I said, Monday, July 26, 2021. If NYCFC has a stadium before the end of the decade, I think that that will be a success. And that's a horrible thing to say. That's a horrible thing to say. But it's the reality. And look, I know we're not telling them anything they don't know. They they want a stadium just like everybody else. But you created this situation. And so you don't get to say, well, it's New York and it's uh, systemic and it's the, the history and it's difficult and all that kind of stuff. Figure it out, okay? You got smart people, you got rich people, all right? And you decided that this was the best thing for uh, for for your league from a league perspective and the people that you brought in. You decided that it was best for your company and for your global brand and your and your brand in New York to do this. All right, fine. But now you got to deal with the consequences. And so when people are complaining, either from the inside or, or, or the outside, you don't have answers for them. And it's and it's frustrating because there's so many other great stories and there's so many other places. And I understand that New York is not like Columbus or any or any place else. But once again, figure it out, okay? Because it's not a good look. It's not a good look for the individual team and it's not a good, uh, a good look for the league. All right, that's enough about uh, MLS. We're going to uh, take a real quick break here uh, and then we're going to bring uh, Doug back on in the next segment because, as we mentioned, the dude's been staying up all night. All right, he's watching every Olympic event, including soccer and the shooting and the uh, the skateboarding and the swimming and the, all the different stuff that's going out there. The man doesn't sleep, so he knows everything about what's going on when it comes to the world of soccer, including uh, the world of Olympic soccer. And we're, so we're going to bring him back in the uh, in the next segment and talk a little bit of Olympic soccer. And also, David uh, David Mossy, my friend over there, has also been staying up because, well, he wants to watch his Brazil run around. All right, uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, like I said, we'll be talking Olympics. Don't go anywhere. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, we're back and we're going to talk Olympics. Evidently, the Olympics are happening, guys. Um... Uh, for those that uh, are sleeping through the night, you won't necessarily know it, but the Olympics are happening. They're off to the races, literally, uh, in some cases, off to the races. And certainly from a soccer perspective, and as a veteran of a couple of, of, of Olympics, I know how exciting it can be and important it can be and the platform that this can be, especially for younger and less experienced players. When it comes to the women's side, we'll remind you again that it is the full national teams uh, in that there is no age restriction uh, although it's not necessarily all the best teams in the world, unfortunately, because of the, the weird and strange qualifying process that they go through. And so, you know, teams like Germany um, and France are not uh, or France are uh, are not there. And, you know, they are some of the elite teams in the world. So that, that kind of sucks. 
Um, and from the men's side, it's under 23. At the, you have to be under 23 at the time of the Olympics, although this was pushed back a year, so it's actually under 24. And there are your three overage players, and that's been in place for that three overage players thing since 1996. So U.S. men uh, are, are not there, but Mossy's Brazil are there. When it comes to our women, we... As we say each and every time, we expect them to win every single game and every single tournament that they are in. And this tournament is no different. And yet they come out of the shoot and with all the attention and everything that they are, the rock stars that they are on and off the field and the way that they suck the oxygen in a wonderful way out of everything and the pedestal that they have and the microphones and megaphones that they have and everything that they are, the balloon is deflated with a I mean, it was a comprehensive defeat to our friends, Sweden, um, which at times have have caused us problems. Uh, Was this, and and look, a lot of people come to the soccer world either through an Olympics or through a World Cup, and they're not necessarily following this team uh, directly uh, day after day, week after week, year after year. But the, uh, the level of reaction and angst and with a good, you know, portion actually of glee, to be quite honest with you, even from our uh, from our uh, uh, our own country, uh, and the reaction to this result, Doug, should we should we be as surprised as many were when we woke up this morning? If you didn't, or that morning, if you didn't uh, stay up and saw that three nothing um, beatdown that Sweden put on the U.S. women's national team. Yeah, you should be surprised. That does not happen to the U.S. women's national team. And it certainly doesn't happen in the opening game of a major tournament. And it's 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 funny because I was at France uh, 2019 and the opening game in that tournament for the U.S., very interesting as well. The Americans won 13 to nothing over Thailand. And there was all this discussion, you know, should they celebrate all these goals and, and this and that? And this is the polar opposite. I mean, you know, they they not only did they lose 3 nothing. I mean, it could have been a lot more lopsided than that. I mean, Sweden played them off the field. But in a funny way, I think it was actually the best thing that could have happened to this this women's team. And Rose Lavelle, who opened the scoring in in the subsequent 6-1 win against New Zealand, um, you know, she said as much. She said that it it was, you know, it's a wake-up call that to get a wake-up call like that in the first game of the tournament. Uh, is actually good. I mean, you you are a blessing in disguise is, is what she said. And if you think about it, if you have, you know, you lay an egg like that in the quarterfinals, you're going home. So they have time to fix this. And, uh, you know, the second game, they set Olympic records for goals scored and margin of victory. So the real question now is, is what U.S. team shows up uh, tomorrow on Tuesday morning against uh, against Australia, which is a very, very good team and boasts, you know, probably the best striker in the world in Sam Kerr. So uh, very, very tough uh, game for the U.S. And the thing that they've all talked about is making sure they have the intensity that's that's required, that's expected of the U.S. team, um, because if they don't have that, then, you know, and, and I think that that was the big thing that, that shocked everyone in the Sweden game. It just didn't look like the U.S. team. You know, you talk about their, their skill and, and, you know, they're the number one team in the world and back to back. Women's World Cup champions, but you know there there was something off in that first game, and they certainly rectified that in the second game. But they're going to need to ma- maintain that intensity for for the rest of the tournament if they want to become the first team to win a gold medal uh, as the World Cup holders. But I think we would all admit that New England, New, New England, New Zealand is a very different team than Sweden. So was this just an anomaly, just one of those days? And like you said, the reminder that they needed, or 
Did it point out deficiencies in this team that as they go along and face better competition might rear their ugly head again? Yeah, it did. And, and like Sweden, Australia is a really physical team. They're, you know, they can punish mistakes against Sam Kerr. If you give her a chance in the box, she's just going to be able to take it. Um, yeah, there was a lot of questions. Now, there, you know, the interesting thing about the New Zealand game, a lot of reserves came in and, and did very well. Um, and for me, the key player going forward is going to be Julie Ertz. She she comes into the tournament with a knee injury. She doesn't play. She doesn't start against Sweden. They're they're down at halftime. She did come on at halftime, but it wasn't enough. Uh, but she went 90 minutes in the second match. And if her knee holds up, I mean, she's going to be the key uh, in the middle of that field, driving the team on. You know, Vladko Antonovsky, the U.S. coach, talked about how important she is. Even when the U.S. team's attacking, she's back there making sure that you know, that everyone's in the right position defensively in case the, the ball turns over. So, you know, that's going to be really important going forward. And, you know, this is an older team. It's almost the same squad that was in France. Um, and they're going to have to rely on that experience, I think, to get them to get them through this uh, this tournament. But, you know, everything's still to play for for the U.S. women. I, I would not count them out, uh, you know, count them out at your peril. Yeah, I, I wouldn't either. And I think, you know, they're going to rebound. But but I, I, I did think from a physical perspective, to your point, when when they got into it and they were in much more of a of a street fight or a bar fight, uh, there was this kind of looking around and recognition that, well, that's not supposed to happen to us. And they didn't have that that button. And maybe that button or that that th- that switch is Julie Ertz, to your point, because, you know, I, I would want her in a bar fight with me. <laughs> And they don't have a lot of those types of players out there. And I'm not saying that they're not strong uh, mentally or, or, or even physically. But when, when they get up against it and they get down and dirty at times, um, I think they're, they're looking around as, a, as opposed to looking at, the, at themselves. So we'll see uh, against, uh, against Australia. Mossy, I know you've been following the, uh, the men's side over there. And uh, give us a little synopsis for those that are actually sleeping through it. Well, let's start with Mexico. They were feeling very good after that uh, opening 4-1 victory over France, but then they were brought back down to earth uh, by a loss to Japan. Japan, the host with two wins out of two. They've played very well. They have an excellent young winger, Kubo, who's on the books at Real Madrid, but who's been loaned out a lot the last couple of years, including to Stu Holden's Mallorca. So he's a player to watch. Uh, Honduras, the other CONCACAF team who eliminated the U.S. in qualifying, uh, they have uh, one win and one loss in their group, so they're still in the mix for a knockout stage berth. Um, Spain, interestingly enough, they were the betting favorite. They brought a, a really strong squad to this tournament. A lot of guys had played in the Euros. Eric Garcia, Pau Torres at the back, uh, Pedri, Dani Omo. They brought Asensio as an overage player. They have not looked that great. They were opening game nil-nil against Egypt, and then uh, had to struggle to beat Australia 1-0 in the second game. They now face uh, Argentina in their final group game, and there's a pretty good chance the loser of that game would be knocked out. And, and believe it or not, I know this sounds sacrilege for a Brazilian to say, but I'm kind of pulling for Argentina because Spain is a team I, I kind of want to get out of this tournament uh, because on paper, I think if you get them out of there, then on paper, Brazil would have the strongest squad uh, moving forward. Uh, as for Brazil, uh, 4-2 win over Germany in the opener. Richarlison with a first-half hat-trick a player who I, I criticize a lot after the Copa America final. Yeah, debacle. hold on, hold on, hold on. So I, <laughs> I so I wake up the next morning, right? And uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm looking through, and, and I got people that are texting me and people that are tweeting me saying, "Hey, 
Mossy spent the last month telling us how crap Richarlson is, okay? And now he's the savior over there. What gives? What is going on? So is it just the water over there in Japan for this guy or uh, or what? Is he good or isn't he good when it really comes down to it? Well, whatever you think of him as a player, I actually agree with a tweet that Max Bredo sent out. It, it, it is kind of a joke that he's at this tournament. It shows the lack of backbone that a club like Everton has uh, because he already played in World Cup qualifying. He played in the Copa America. He was a starter for Brazil in that tournament. He logged a lot of minutes, and now here he is in the Olympics as well. It's the same case for Pedri, uh, to be fair. Uh, the young Spanish player just mentioned Barcelona. But... Um, you know, you look at all the other uh, Premier League clubs that block players. Mo Salah wanted to play uh, in the uh, Olympics and, and Klopp shut that down. But apparently Everton don't have the backbone to do the same because Richarlison decided he wanted to play. And, and lo and behold, there he is. So uh, it, I agree with Max Spreaders. I'm happy he's there, but I, I must admit, if I was an Everton fan, I'd be livid. Um, now, I said Brazil beat Germany in the opener 4-2. A next game, nil-nil against the Ivory Coast. And this is going to set me off on a bit of a rant here. Brazil had a, a player, Douglas Luiz, another player, by the way, who played in the Copa America and now is at the Olympics, but he didn't play that much in the Copa America. So that case is not as egregious to me. Um, he gets red carded in the first 15 minutes. And I am so tired of seeing defenders getting straight red cards uh, on plays where there's absolutely minimal contact and then hearing announcers say, well, the referee didn't have a choice there. If the rule is written that way, they need to either change the rule or tell referees to interpret it differently because, and I know you bristle at, at this notion of the spirit of the rule, but the spirit of that rule is that when a striker is on a breakaway and a defender cynically hauls him down, he should be sent off a straight red card. But we're seeing plays where a defender is making a play on the ball. He just brushes up against the attacker. The attacker throws himself on the ground. It's debatable whether it's even a foul, but okay, you want to give a foul there, fine. But then to compound it by showing the, 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 the player a straight red card, I thought that was an incredibly harsh decision on Douglas Luiz. There was a Copa Sudamericana game I watched recently between Independiente and Santos in which an Independiente player got a straight red card for a foul in Marina, which I thought was very harsh as well. I hate these plays. I, I'm going to have to have a talk with Dr. Joe Macknick about it because I think it's ludicrous. Uh, I, mean, do, do, I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? These plays where it's a breakaway, yeah, I, I know, and technically it's the last defender, but it's just, it's light contact. Yeah, but if it's outside of the box, okay, then it's the denial of the uh, of the goal scoring opportunity that they are assessing there, and it has nothing to do necessarily whether a play was on the ball. The whole point of the triple jeopardy thing was if there was a play on the if the if the the defender was attempting to make a play on the ball, then you cut him or her some slack in the box. Doug, help me out here, though. Shouldn't the severity of the foul play some part? Shouldn't there be a little bit of leeway there for a referee to look at it and say, well, it's pretty minimal contact. To show a guy a straight red card for that would be very harsh. Yeah, I, I hate it too, David. I, I really do. It just, it feels, it feels, you know, it, it's not commensurate with with the crime to send a guy off, usually in that situation. So I'm, I'm with you. You cannot be a little pregnant, gentlemen, okay? <laughs> uh, Alexi, one last note on the Olympics. Uh, uh, shifting gears to basketball, the U.S. Uh, men's basketball team lost their opener to France. And I have to say, scrolling through Twitter that day, it was so funny to me because I saw a lot of the same conversations that were had after the uh, qualifying defeat to Trinidad in 2017 about all the flaws in player development and we're falling behind the rest of the world and and, and this and that. And it was just so funny to see. Uh, it's like, hey, yeah, I remember those debates with soccer. And now I'm seeing him in a different sport. Uh, but I will leave you with a little bit of a basketball hot take here. I don't know if Doug is much of a basketball fan, but are we sure Greg Popovich is still a good coach anymore? I mean, Ooh. it's a guy that might have lost his fastball a couple of years ago. Wow. 
But I, I, I was told that it has nothing to do necessarily with whether he's a good coach. He's a, he's a virtuous man, and everything <laughs> that he says is to be, is to be followed. And uh, he is uh, an example, and he is sitting there and, and telling us what to do and how to live and what to say and all that kind of stuff. So that's much more important, I thought. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Doug, uh, you watching any of the other sports? I watched a little bit. I did watch some of that France US game and yeah, I like I like Pop, but you know, Coach Coach K is a legend for a reason and you know, maybe that's uh, you know, maybe that's that's part of it. I don't know. Coach K seemed to have the magic touch in, in Olympics. Um, uh, but it makes it more interesting to me. Like it, it it really does and you know, if if there's more competition for the US in men's basketball, I think that's probably uh probably a good thing. All right. Well, we're going to move on uh, to uh, to our next segment here and take a little uh, take a little break. And we're going to say goodbye to Doug and, and thank him. Uh, what's uh, what do you got in plan? What do you got in, st- in store then? What are you working on there in uh, in the uh, in the written word and or the uh, video world? Yeah, I mean, just trying to get through these two tournaments, first and foremost. And, and you know, there's so much to talk about that it's it's really fun. I mean, there's you know, there's there's availabilities every day with players on both teams. There's there's games every day. It was a little weird having that week off in um, in the Gold Cup. You don't normally see that in an international tournament. Um, but, you know, the next the next week, week and a half are going to be really busy. So I'm uh, I'm I'm glad to be involved. I'm glad to be working with you fine folks. And uh Appreciate you having me on. Well, welcome to the Fox family. Uh, it's it's great that we finally have someone who understands the written word, um, uh, and you're going to help us out a whole lot. And you already have. It's uh, it's been wonderful. So um, we can't wait to read uh, and see all that uh, that you are going to do when it comes to writing about the the game that we know and love. Uh, mon ami, it's been great. Thank you much uh, up there in Montreal. I hope that you and yours are staying safe and that at some point we can get together in person out there uh, on the road or here in Los Angeles or uh, in your adopted uh, city up there uh, of Montreal. My friend, thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, oh yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, welcome back. We thank uh, Doug McIntyre for joining us for a couple of segments there. And uh, as I said before, real happy to have him on board with us here at Fox. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi. And uh, as those of you that have paid any attention over the last couple of months, we also have a hotline when it comes to the questions and comments that you can send out. We have the traditional way uh, when it comes to social media and the Twitter platforms and use that hashtag. But you can also call in at 657-549-2297. We get calls each and every week. Uh, And many of them are good, actually. Uh, And we got a couple calls this week that we want to include. So uh, we're going to start off and listen, again, a reminder. Please give us your name and where you're calling from. I know sometimes you get nervous and all that kind of stuff, but just plan it out, write it in front of you and give us your name and where you're coming from. Because as you'll see, uh, when it comes to this first call, for example, there's no name. So we have no idea where this person is coming from. So I'm just going to call him Jim from Kalamazoo. Okay, let's see what Jim from Kalamazoo has to say. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. Uh, Thanks for giving us great content every week. 
I want to say, Alexi, I'm a fan of yours, and I agree with many of the takes that you make. One thing that I don't agree on that you've kind of been pushing for the past few weeks now uh, since these international tournaments have begun is the uh, the notion that uh, in the, in the uh, Gold Cup we want a USA and Mexico final, and we're expecting that. And in the Copa America, we're expecting Argentina and Brazil, and that's what we all want. Don't you think it would be better for the game and more interesting if, you know, it didn't feel like the USA and Mexico were just playing uh, glorified friendlies before they got to a final to play each other for a trophy, that there were more teams that were more competitive? And I guess that that comes with the question, you know, there's always a lot of talk about in, in club soccer in Europe if there's enough parity. Do you think there's enough parity in international soccer? Uh, and, and do you think there's things that could be done to improve the parity of international soccer where it's not just USA and Mexico year in and year out, and, you know, competing for the best in CONCACAF? All right. Thank you. All Bye. right, Jim from Kalamazoo. Uh, interesting. Interesting uh, question. All right. First off, just from a, a practical perspective, us wanting to have a U.S.-Mexico final is the exact same thing that um, – is in the exact same way that we want a – Argentina Brazil final. Look, we are broadcasters of the game. We want as many people to watch as possible. We want to give people and as many people what they crave as possible. And when you have two very, very big teams that are traditionally well followed, that's the kind of stuff that you want. And, you know, yes, we look to the soccer gods to make that happen. And from a Copa America perspective, we got what we wanted with Argentina and Brazil. And from a U.S. perspective, yeah, as I've said before, I want U.S.-Mexico. It's the most exciting thing uh, for me. And from a business perspective, it makes the most sense and gets us the most return on that investment of broadcasting uh, this tournament. Having said that, and to your point, you know, absolutely, I don't want it to be a situation where there are there is a massive separation and the disparity between the haves and the have-nots, and this goes for club soccer too, is such that... It's just completely predictable all the time. And if you actually look at the way CONCACAF has progressed, it is much more, uh, there is much more parity. We've already talked about on this show the, you know, the coming of age of this Canadian team and this El Salvadorian team and uh, this uh, Honduran team. And, you know, a lot of it we've also talked about is actually being the architects uh, of our own at times demise when it comes to Major League Soccer and how we have populated some of uh, some of these teams. So I do think that the parity when it comes to CONCACAF, which traditionally has been the U.S. and Mexico at the top and then everybody else, I think that has starting started to change. It's still the U.S. and Mexico, which is one of the reasons why I want uh, I want to see. And I don't see a foreseeable future where that gets old for me to see a U.S.-Mexico game in a final of a tournament. There is there is nothing like it, and I love it. And don't kill the messenger, but millions of people want that, and millions of people want to see that. And I don't think that that uh, that, that, that that is going to change anytime soon. And the same way that, uh, from a Copa America perspective, we were lucky and we were... You know, even though we were neutrals, I was I was wishing to see that, and you know, we got to see a piece of history with with Messi. And if it had been done against a different team, yes, it would have been important. But I think that it was done in the Maracanã against Brazil. I think it made made it that much more special. And you wouldn't have had it if you had had uh, had another team. Monsi, thoughts on this? Because I know you have some. Well, 
I would just reiterate what I said earlier in the podcast. Canada is coming on and they're clearly the third best team in my view. And, you know, if they could, they could, I could see them getting to the point where it feels like U.S., Mexico, U.S., Canada is sort of an either or where we'd be happy with either one of those finals. There's a lot of potential for U.S., Canada to develop into quite the rivalry the next few years if Canada keeps going on the trajectory they're on. So uh, I do see some long-term potential there in, in, in CONCACAF for it to not be all about the U.S. and Mexico. All right, let's move on to the uh, the next Ask Alexi question. Christian from Denver called in and said this. Hey, Alexi, this is Christian from Denver, Colorado. First of all, big fan of the podcast and of Big Monty. Uh, my question to you guys this week is more of a discussion-based question. I'm really curious to see what you guys' reactions are to um, this discussion. Not sure if you guys have ever heard or are aware of the podcast on ESPN Deportes hosted by Hernan Pereira called SSC Punto. Um, currently being hosted by Lorenzo Estrada for the last couple of podcasts. Um, what, one thing they talk about on there that's very interesting to come my attention is the ongoing conflict and um, I guess you can call it a feud between the Mexican Federation and CONCACAF. Um, just to give a little bit of backstory, uh, CONCACAF basically banned the Mexican Federation from taking their quote-unquote A-team to any other tournament besides the Gold Cup. Uh, most recently in 2015, they told them that there would be repercussions for taking, again, a quote-unquote A-team to that tournament. So what Mexico did was take a quote-unquote B-team, and later that summer they would, the best they had to offer to a Gold Cup and eventually go on to win the 2015 edition of the tournament. Later, fast forward six years, the United States men's national team took a quote-unquote uh, B, or what some may even call a C-team, to the Gold Cup edition. And to surprise of many, especially the Mexican Federation, CONCACAF has not punished them by any means. There's not even a discussion going on of what repercussions will be. Basically, it's not a big deal to them. So Mexican Federation is very upset with this. Um, just curious to see what your guys' uh, opinions are on this, especially with the uh, conflicts they have going on in this most recent edition of the tournament with the horrible refereeing decisions as well. Um, there's possible talks and you know, just speculation and rumors at this point saying that Mexico can leave CONCACAF altogether. Um, not sure if that has any legs to it, but just curious to see you guys' uh, take on this and see what you guys' initial thoughts are on it. Um, but yeah, again, Christian from Denver, Colorado. You guys can do me a favor and follow me on Twitter at Guild Football. Uh, run a Twitter account over there called The Football Guild. Uh, really exciting stuff I'm trying to do. But yeah. Love the podcast, guys. Keep it up. All right, Masi. I, I hope I understood this question correctly uh, from Christian from Denver. But I, I'll be honest with you. For, it's the first time that I'm hearing about this, uh, you know, uh, disagreement, collusion, whatever you want to talk about it. So uh, if if Christian knows something more than I do, uh, or there are, are discussions on uh, in Spanish language that are happening relative to this, uh, it's news to me. Doesn't mean it. Uh, doesn't mean it hasn't. It hasn't happened, but. The way that I understand it, um, when it comes to the teams that you take, first off, you are uh, subject to the realities of the situation when it comes to the fact that players at some point need time off. There are blackout dates, there's non-blackout dates, and the relationships that you have with these clubs uh, enable you uh, to take the players or make you think twice about taking players and doing all that kind of stuff. You know, the the concept of bringing an A-team and requiring teams to field their A-teams, that is nothing new in sports. And there have been 
there has been rules and regulations at times uh, implemented that that will guard against teams sandbagging or teams not bringing their their not fielding their strongest team. It's happened at club and it and it uh, and it probably happens internationally. I don't think that that is necessarily what is going on here when it comes to the uh, the Mexican Federation and Concacaf, but. Problems uh, and discussions and disagreements and even animosity between confederations, which is what CONCACAF is, and federations, which is what Mexico is in this case, are legendary and ongoing. And those don't surprise me in the least because at times they are competing interests in what they feel should be a priority, in what they value and what they don't value. And some of that probably could be at play here. Mossy? Yeah, the only thing I would say is, look, the U.S. Uh, sometimes sends an A team to the Gold Cup, sometimes sends a B team, depending on the circumstances that summer. But the U.S. has never given off a vibe to me that they think they're above CONCACAF. Mexico has, uh, and both at the international level and also at club level, when, for about 20 years, their Mexican clubs competed in the Copa Libertadores. They only stopped because there was a scheduling change and some logistical issues, and now they're looking to possibly get back in. And so I think CONCACAF is right to worry more about Mexico in that regard than the U.S. It should be the same rule for, for every country, but to the extent where, that there's any justification there for CONCACAF treating Mexico and the U.S. differently, I think it's because of that. They're more worried about Mexico acting like they really feel like they're more the 11th member of CONMEBOL rather than, than, than really embracing being in CONCACAF. And, and, you know, the U.S. only competes in the Copa America once in a blue moon. I know you played in one in 95. Mexico, uh, tended to compete in every single one. Uh, and so there was a real concern there. Wait a minute, are they valuing another region's competition more than their own? And so I, I think it is a little bit of a different set of circumstances there. But but you will admit, and I think we would both admit, that you got to, you have to be very delicate and sensitive and to a certain extent political in the way that you look at Mexico because they are of incredible value to CONCACAF. I was driving in the car yesterday with my good friend, uh, Rob Stone, as we uh, carpooled to work together, and he was trying to explain to my little brain about the, this whole SEC thing that's going on with teams moving in and out. And look, you, you, you have teams within a conference or a league, or in this case, it's a confederation type of thing, that oftentimes are your bread and butter and bring incredible value. And those teams recognize that they bring incredible value. And so you just got to be careful how you go about that because at times people will puff out their chest and they'll leverage that power that they have and the value that they have both on the sides of the teams and on the sides of the confederation because CONCACAF I think recognizes that they are better having a happy Mexico within that organization and a happy U.S. let's be let's be honest than without it and if for example if Mexico were to go uh, and and join Comnibol that would not be a good thing for CONCACAF in the same way that if the U.S. left, in the same way that, and I don't know any of these teams that Rob was talking about yesterday, but that's why there's this, this worry and this consternation that people are going to leave and then what they leave behind is going to be of much less value and you need that attachment and that association with these, uh, these teams going forward. I can't believe that I just brought up uh, college football in, uh, in the midst of this uh, question. That's how much Rob Stone has infected me on these carpools into work. Mossy, <laughs> uh, anything else on this question? Uh, no, we can move on. All right. Well, we also have a question on the more traditional uh, platform and in the form of Twitter. Uh, what does this person want to know, Mossy? Uh, Chip 
McMahon uh, asks, which is more prestigious and why, World Cup or Olympic gold? Interesting. Okay, so uh, I was involved in 1992 Olympics and 1996 Olympics. So that would have been 1992 in Barcelona and 1996 uh, uh, as the U.S. hosted it in Atlanta. And I was also involved in the 94 World Cup and the 98 World Cup. There is a generation... Um, and it started to dissipate, but there is a generation that over the years when I have told them that I played in Olympics relative to playing in a World Cup, that they are that, uh, an American generation I'm talking about, that they are much more impressed with the fact that I played in an Olympics than a World Cup. And that comes from, you know, a, a lack of history and a lack of knowledge when it comes to what soccer is. Having said that, I think that whether it's men's or women's, okay, the opportunity for a soccer player to play in a World Cup supersedes everything out there. And even supersedes a lot of the club accomplishments. There is something special about a World Cup. And if you are in soccer, you grow up watching World Cups. And you know we heard Doug earlier in the show talking about the impact that the World Cup experience had on Matt Turner growing up as a young player and how it can, it can turn you on in a way that, that many other things can't. And it's all soccer. It is, they, they have all the focus and the energy and the entire platform when these teams are in a, a, a World Cup. And I think that differentiates it uh, for me as opposed to the platform that is shared by so many other sports when it comes, comes to the, Olymp- the Olympics. Now, that same question today, because of the advancement and the progress that we have had and the evolution that we have had as a soccer playing country and culture, the answers might be different. There would be many more people now that might be more impressed with the fact that you played in a World Cup because there's there's a better understanding of how massive the World Cup is. And obviously, we've hosted World Cups. We've won World Cups when it comes to the women. We know now how big it is. And, and even people that don't necessarily follow soccer understand that, yeah, the World Cup, yeah, the World Cup is huge. But look, for a certain generation, you grow up and you know, you, you, you see what the, the 80 hockey team was and being on the cover of the Wheaties box and the Olympics and what they mean and, um, you know, how, how closely we identify and kind of look forward to the Olympics from an American perspective. And, and, and we, we get incredibly proud of our country through the Olympics. All that, all that kind of stuff ha- can happen in a World Cup. But as I said, that generation is, is, starting, is starting to change. From a from a pure competitive standpoint, obviously from the men's perspective, that it is under 23 makes it very different uh, and, and very unique. And that's by design, by the way, uh, to make it not just another World Cup. Um, however, it offers incredible opportunity and a, a breeding ground for, for stars. And there's plenty of people that come to the Olympics and watch these Olympic teams with contracts in their pocket looking for that next player to sign uh, from big clubs out there. And there's plenty of players that have used that as a platform from which to go to you know big moves and to go to big clubs uh, out there. From a women's perspective, um, I still think it's the World Cup. And especially what the World Cup has become over the last three or four cycles uh, and has become to the American audience. And we've seen the incredible numbers that have watched it, you know, gravitating not just to the American team, but to an American team, a soccer team that wins in these big tournaments. I think that that has started to separate out the World Cup from the Olympics when it comes to the uh, the women's team. So I think in totality, it has it is the World Cup. 
that does take priority and is between the two ahead. And that has not, as I said, always been the case, but I don't know. Do you see it as anything, anything different? And maybe it's obviously it's different to different cultures, but I'm just talking about the American culture. Well, look, it's clearly the World Cup. Uh, it's less of a gap, as you mentioned, on the women's side than the men. Um, but I, I will say um, on the men's side, th- there's uh, there's a sentiment with a lot of people that, you know, the Olympics is completely worthless uh, because, as you mentioned, it's an under-23 competition. And it's oftentimes not even the best under-23 players from these countries because they have issues getting players released from clubs. Uh, I... I value the Olympics more than most. Uh, now, I'm, I'm a little bit biased there as a Brazilian because uh, Brazil tends to value global competitions uh, more and, and regional competitions less uh, than others. I mentioned this ahead of the Copa America final, how it was interesting to me that in an effort to push this narrative that Neymar was going for his first international title, the Confederations Cup was completely scrubbed from the record books. You know, they, people could have at least inserted the word major in there and said, oh, he's never won a major international title. And then, okay, that's subjective, whether the Confederations Cup was a major uh, title or not. But no, they just said he's, he's never won an international title. So we're pretending like that competition never existed, which, which is funny because when the Confederations Cup and the Copa America existed side by side, Brazil took the Confederations Cup more seriously because, again, it's a global term. Tournament, and they tend to take global tournaments more seriously than regional ones. In, in the 19 years since Brazil last won the World Cup in 2002, uh, the, the, my two most treasured victories are the 2005 Confederations Cup final over Argentina, 4-1 in Germany, and the 2013 Confederations Cup final win over Spain, 3-0 at the Maracanã in front of 80,000 people. The place went nuts. I think about those games more than I think about any of the Copa Americas that Brazil won over that span. And I also think about the 16 Olympic gold medal more. That felt like it had real significance. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a long-winded way to say I, I, I value the Olympics uh, even on the men's side more than most. A lot of people thought, well, Brazil only cared about it all those years because they had never won it. And then in 16, there was this extra layer of it being at home. And then once they won the gold medal, they would start not caring about it like, like most other countries. But no, you've seen this summer, Brazil cared about it a lot. And in, in terms of figuring out how to divvy up the roster between Copa America and Olympics, there were a lot of debates about certain players who are uh, of Olympic age, good enough to be on the senior team, but wouldn't, wouldn't they be better off going to the Olympics? It wasn't this issue. It wasn't this thing of like the senior team can take whatever they want. And then the, the, the Olympics just gets whatever's left over. There was some real value given to also wanting to send a strong team to the Olympics. You had players fighting to be there like Richarlison that we mentioned. And so, so yeah, I mean, I might be in the minority on this, but I, I give value to the Olympic men's tournament. I enjoy it. I think it's a really cool tournament to win. It's, it's so great to see, you know, 38-year-old Danny Alves captaining Brazil and so happy to be there. Andre Pierre Gignac, who, by the way, is the leading scorer so far, four goals in two games. Uh, he's leading France's attack. And, and those players at that age who have accomplished so much in their careers, uh, really relishing being at an Olympics. And, and by the way, most of the star players that aren't there would have wanted to be there and were blocked by their clubs. Mbappe expressed an interest in being there. Mo Salah, Neymar, and in all those cases, the club said no. So I think it, it means more to players and, and fans realize if it was up to them, I think more star players would play in the Olympics, whether they are of age or as one of those overage players. Well said, my friend. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that 
ignore it or poo-poo it at your own peril. And I mean, even look at, at, at the way Mexico has looked at the Olympics and, you know, building that generation that did so well in the Olympics. So uh, yeah, I, I think different countries and cultures look at it differently, but I, I think it's a wasted opportunity. And, you know, that's why it, it, it hurts us so much that the men's team has not qualified now for, for multiple cycles, because it's a wasted opportunity to go to a major tournament and have that experience. And, you know, as I said, uh, I remain incredibly proud that I represented my country at the World Cup level and at the Olympic level. I think back at the Olympics, uh, and I'll leave you here with a couple of Olympic anecdotes before we head on into the end of the show here. Um, I uh, So the 92 Olympics, I ended up actually breaking my foot right before the 92 Olympics. I broke my fifth metatarsal and right before the Olympics. And yet I, uh, what we did was we, we set about a course of treatment where I wore a shoe that was a, 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 a size and a half too big, and we actually put a cast around my foot to get me through the game. And we spent thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, I remember them telling me, and I mean, because the Olympic Village is equipped to survive anything and is equipped with anything that you possibly need. And we spent thousands and thousands of dollars, and I ended up putting my foot in a cast and then that cast in a Copa shoe that was a size and a half too big. And I ended up being able to play for a half. And I just wanted to get on the field. And, and luckily, my coach at the time, Lothar Osiander, said, all right, we'll give it a go and we'll see what happens. And uh, I wasn't great, but I, you know, I also didn't cost my team uh, in the game. I also remember that because we walked in the opening ceremonies and that was during the 1992 uh, Olympics. So the dream team was there. Uh, so that was amazing. I remember sitting under a, a huge flag that had gone over all the athletes as we were there in the infield and the uh, festivities were going on. And Jennifer Capriati was sitting next to me who, and she had no shoes on. I remember looking up in the stands and seeing, I don't know, Fidel Castro and uh, Mandela and, you know, all of these incredible international dignitaries. And and that, all, all that kind of stuff, I think is why you see someone like Mbappe that from afar, even though it's not going to happen, kind of yearns for that Olympic experience that even in a country and culture that doesn't take it as as seriously as maybe we do or others do there's still a recognition that this is a pretty unique type of experience and it was by the way in 96 what I'm reminded of is it's the first time I ever had Lunchables and for those that have ever had Lunchables out there you know exactly what I'm speaking and it was introduced I guess to us through being in the Olympic Village and you had uh, as much Lunchables as you could possibly eat we also got this was so long ago that we got pagers instead of cell phones in our gift basket. And so we could page each other. And I'll never forget, you know, from a, a horrible perspective, uh, when the TWA flight went down outside of JFK, I think it was flight uh, 800 went down. I remember getting that text and seeing it on uh, uh, on our pager and obviously the uh, the bombing that happened there, too. So so many different memories when it comes to the Olympics. And they are uh, they are incredible uh, and they can be incredible. It remains to be seen whether this summer is, is is going to live up. It's going to be definitely something different. But from a soccer perspective, I think we've done a good job in talking about that. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll finish out the show here uh, with my one for the road. All right, we're back and it's the end of the show. And uh, at the end of each and every show, uh, I give you my one for the road. It's been a pretty good show so far, if I do say so my damn self, and I do. Um, Okay, Uh, earlier this week, I took a little uh, crap uh, for a tweet that I sent out uh, in which I was responding to somebody who said, um, and I don't know their name, but uh, they said, 
Listening to people talk about tactics is confusing if you don't play. I don't know a false eight from a true crime. And, you know, I think this this person's point was that in soccer, as is probably the case in a lot of sports and a lot of things out there, uh, we've all been there where you sit down with people and you are lost and the amount of jargon that is flying around uh, uh, makes you feel small and uneducated and not part of the conversation. And a lot of it seemingly just goes over your head. And I responded to this person saying, don't worry, here's a dirty little soccer secret. Most of it is BS. Uh, The tactical jargon that is used is just a cover in an attempt to look smart and explain and comprehend a sport that is uniquely arbitrary and unpredictable. Now, you say that, and a lot of people said, well, you're just showing the fact that you don't understand the game and you have no idea um, and you're telling on yourself, if you will. And I get that. I understand that uh, people can take it uh, that way. There are plenty of people out there that are incredibly smart and nuanced and understand the complexities that uh, that our game have. And they talk about it in a way um, that is genuine, that is interesting, um, and that use certain jargon out there. But we've all been there. We've all been there where we've sat down next to somebody and this person has spouted on about something, whether it's soccer or anything else, and they're using all these catchphrases. And as I said, it's an attempt to make themselves look smarter than they actually uh, actually are. And as I said before, in no way does that diminish the folks out there that uh, that talk about the game and analyze the game and, and talk about tactics, uh, nor does it diminish the fact that this game uh, has tactics, needs that type, uh, needs tactics, uh, and can benefit from uh, from tactics, uh, which is another accusation that I was uh, that that, uh, that was levied at me. Um, but having you know, having said all that, it is a as I said in the uh, in my uh, in my tweet. Um, an incredibly arbitrary and unpredictable way. Yes, you can find things that are predictable. I predict that this kickoff, this player is going to kick the ball. Yes, you can find tendencies out there. But relative to a lot of other sports, it is incredibly difficult to predict. And that's where the art is. That's where the skill is. But when we are talking with people, about this game. And, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about trying to bring people to the game and bring people into the tent. I don't want to dumb it down, okay? Uh, But I also don't want to do things that are going to um, exclude people or turn people off. And, you know, if you are using jargon, once again, if if you're using it to specifically talk about something, Recognize that not everybody may know what you are talking about, okay? And uh, being able to explain why you are using that jargon and why it makes sense to do that, I think is I think is important. But more often than not, I have found that either you know through FIFA or whatever it ends up being, people throw out all of these different phrases when they could use completely different ones, and they do it once again. Uh, to make themselves to, to make themselves look good. Not everybody else, not everybody out there, and there's plenty of people out there, like I said, that are completely genuine in the way that they do it. But plenty of uh, people out there, and I would expect that that probably happens in a lot of walks in life. And it's a defense mechanism. And in this particular case, because our game is 
so arbitrary relative to other sports. We are trying. And whether it's Pep Guardiola to someone that just came to the game, everybody is trying to figure out this formula. And everybody is trying to figure out what the solution is. And guess what? Nobody has. Some people have are further along than others, but nobody has. And that's part of what makes it a wonderful game. You know, the complexity and the nuance to it. And I would submit that that arbitrary, unpredictable nature of the game is what I find beautiful about the game. In that there are a zillion solutions and not necessarily any of them are right. And that's okay. And I think that that's why the game is unique relative to many other sports out there. And it's one of the things that I love. And we will continue to try. And at times it's maddening. And whether you are a pep, like I said, that probably thinks about this every single day. And I think if you talk to him would be the first to admit that while he's been doing it and doing it at a high level and been very successful over the years, he still has not figured out that that formula of what soccer is. And that's what excites him, is that there is this perpetual learning and there's this perpetual problem that is out there. And we all think that there's a solution. And there might not be, but it doesn't mean that we don't try to find it. All right, uh, Mossy, anything uh, regarding that? Because uh, I want to give you a chance if you want to respond. No, no, nothing on that. But I just want to say, uh, Doug McIntyre, uh, first guest we've ever kept on for two segments. I'm already hearing from Stu Holden and Moadu's agents. They're unhappy. Why did they only get one segment on the pod? So Hey, listen, if, if they did the work that Doug does and stayed up all night watching every time a human being on the earth actually kicks a ball, then maybe they'd get another segment. But until that time... Doug deserves it. And I'm glad that he was on. I want to thank him again uh, for coming on and welcome him, like I said, to the Fox family. Uh, Thank you, though. Uh, Thank everybody out there for continuing to uh, review and rate and subscribe and download and do all the things out there that you do. Thank you for the Ask Alexi questions. Once again, that telephone number, if you want to call us and rant and rave, feel free. 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297, our State of the Union hotline, which is open 24 hours a day for you to leave a message and uh, tell us something that's uh, hopefully interesting and entertaining. But, you know, once again, give us your name and where you're uh, where you're from. We will talk again next week. Same time, same place here at the State of the Union podcast. Uh, And until then, and as always, size the day. (laughs) 